Opioids don't relieve acute low back or neck pain and can result in worse pain, new study finds. Australia must brace itself amidst fear of deadly fentanyl explosion. How did the opioid crisis get so bad so quickly? The answer comes down to marketing. Welcome to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wang podcast. I'm Jack Wang, a scientist and college professor at Australian University. And on this podcast, we talk about the overlap between science, technology, and productivity, and how all of these themes and news headlines are connected in more ways than we anticipate. Today's episode is a very tense and delicate subject area. It talks about addiction and the role that the opioid crisis plays into addiction and how it impacts all of those around us as well as the global economy. And the first question I want to answer today is, how did this all begin? An article outlining the origins of the opioid epidemic, and it was published initially as a working paper back in 2019 in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. This really highlights something very interesting about the triplicate state. A triplicate state in the USA is a state which had stricter regulations on prescribing certain kinds of drugs. And essentially, it wanted to deter doctors from prescribing drugs that may be a little bit too dangerous or a little bit too addictive. So it says here that there are three copies of every prescription, especially if they're scheduled to control substances, of which many of them are opioids. And the doctor, the physician, had to keep one copy on record. The patient took two copies to the pharmacy, the pharmacy kept one and sent the third copy to the state drug monitoring agency and the state agency maintained a databases from these forms to monitor and investigate prescribing irregularities and diversion and triplicate states included California, Idaho, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New York and Texas between the years of 1961 and 1988. All of these programs eventually lapsed because the, we're talking about bits of paper, right? This is like back in the Stone Age, three bits of paper that then fed into a agency database of some sort, which needs to coordinate with all of these doctors. But nevertheless, these states had this idea that we needed to deter physicians from prescribing these maybe overly addictive drugs scheduled to controlled substances, which again includes many opioids. What the internal memos from a pharma company called Purdue Pharma, which had a new drug in its pipeline, Oxycontin, one of the earliest precursors of the very addictive opioids back in 1996. And like many drug companies, they wanted to market this drug for it to have a chance of succeeding. And indeed, it does have a proper use. It does help manage pain, especially in short controlled dosages after surgery, for instance. In states, which had this triplicate program where the doctor had to have a copy of the prescription, the patient had two copies, one would have to be taken to the pharmacist where they get the drug from, and that gets then sent to the state agency. Those states were unlikely to take off. So being a business, they decided to ration their marketing resources and said, look, if the doctor is within a triplicate state, let's not bother sending out all of our reps to these triplicate states with this extra regulatory oversight. Let's purely focus our marketing dollars on those states which don't have this rigorous oversight system in place, don't have this triplicate check, triplicate prescription copy system in place. Only focus on what we call the non-triplicate state for their marketing strategy. The article goes on to talk about triplicate states. I mentioned repeatedly in Purdue Pharma internal documents as being important barriers to OxyContin prescribing. 
with lower expected returns from marketing spend. And as a result of that, less marketing was targeted to triplicate states. And in fact, the product Oxycontin should only be positioned to physicians in non-triplicate states. This then provided a, a blueprint for people to go through and figure out exactly which areas of the United States were hit worse by the opioid epidemic in the ensuing years, what correlation that may have to marketing dollars spent on this kind of thing in the non-triplicate states. So again, these are the states without that prescription monitoring system of three sets triplicate. The deaths per 100,000 went up dramatically between 1997, especially all the way to 2017 at the time of the study. Triplicate state, those states which had those more aggressive monitoring system for prescription, they had an even flatter kind of rise. Now, it's still an upper trend, so this is not great news for any state, but certainly the states that didn't have the regulations around more scrutiny on prescriptions, they not only had more deaths, these deaths were the result of deliberate marketing efforts to funnel more resources to talk about the opioids in those states because they knew it would be better bang for buck as distasteful as that sounds their marketing for physicians in those areas would be more likely to result in a sale of oxy because those physicians had less forms to fill out it was that simple this opioid epidemic really began due to a aggregation of resources for marketing in states with less regulation. That all leaves a very bad taste in my mouth as I'm reading about this, but it is quite interesting on a driving past a, a car crash on a highway kind of way in that this is how it all began because of marketing dollars for a very addictive drug. Now, the opioid epidemic is not new, but what is the headline that has emerged as new is this new study on lower back or neck pain. And I, like many of my other Gen Z millennial compatriots, I'm not in the Gen Z, I'm barely a millennial. We are at our computers and our phones all the time, so we have lower back and neck pain constantly, and it's an ongoing battle to manage that day to day. Some days it's really bad, other days it's not. I'm assuming at some point in my life, we get really bad to a point where I have to consider more serious intervention other than just stress and yoga and exercise. This study was one of the first ones to show that a lot of people who go to their GP with low back and neck pain and also visit a hospital emergency department with these conditions, they are prescribed opioids such as oxycodone. And oxycodone is the aforementioned drug that would lead to all of those opioid overdoses. Straight away, really dicey territory. Lower back pain can feel like you wake up and you can't move. So it can feel debilitating. You have to get rid of it as soon as possible. But this study published in the Lancet Medical Journal, which is a very prestigious medical journal, found that opioids do not relieve acute low back or neck pain and actually can result in worse pain. And prescribing opioids may not even impact the condition that it was trying to cure in the first place, but could cause other side effects such as nausea, constipation, dizziness, not to mention misuse, dependency, addiction, poisoning, and death. And this article really says opioids should not be recommended for acute low back pain or neck pain. And what I'm really keen to see is what is the alternative? Because again, I have nowhere near this level, but I have back pain, I have neck pain. What else am I supposed to do? I'm not on any opioids. I'm not any other medication for this kind of stuff. But what is the alternative? Instead of just raising the problem, let's find some solutions to this situation. But the study, they compared opioids to a placebo. They had 347 people in their trial who took either an opioid or a placebo. What happened was they took it for six weeks, maximum six weeks, and they assessed the outcome over one year. So it wasn't over a few months, it was over a year. So that really kind of smoothed out any bumps in the 
variability road. Under these conditions, the opioids did not result in better pain relief compared to placebo, nor were there other benefits such as physical function, quality of life, recovery time, or work absenteeism. And people who were treated with opioids experienced nausea, constipation, dizziness more than those in the placebo group and it highlighted that there is potential long-term harm of opioids even with short-term use over six weeks, not to mention again the risk of becoming addicted to this very potent set of drugs. But the fact that this made news is because guidelines kind of go against this. The guidelines still include opioid prescription in Australia at least and international low back pain guidelines highlight the use of opioids, the responsible use of opioids. When other treatments haven't worked or aren't appropriate, it doesn't outright ban the use of opioids, just discourages it. And this kind of research is really trying to take it to the next step to say, look, not only should it be discouraged, it maybe should be banned for this kind of condition for low back or neck pain because it doesn't seem to help even a short-term use of the drug doesn't seem to help and has other side effects not to mention really deadly potential overdose change of this kind of practice not just applies for outpatients right patients who go visit their gps look for some advice and then leave but it also applies for people who are admitted into emergency departments in hospitals how that is treated under those kind of emergency conditions might be where it makes the most impact because that is where people are in more life or death situations where the pain is a bit more severe and even under those conditions, the use of opioids might not be preferable to something like clinical education about managing the pain, uh, really talking about HEPACs and anti-inflammatory pain medications, something as simple as aspirins, uh, Tylenol or paracetamol or, or ibuprofen, Nurofen, any of those more common pain management treatments is still better and more reliable long-term than prescribing opioids. This is work that is quite new, but it really highlights that there are a lot of other unwanted effects that come from prescribing opioids. And one of those effects is covered in the next article where the RACGP, which is the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, they really wanted to have more drug testing services done across Australia because what is happening is that the opioid fentanyl has been mixed into all sorts of drugs, recreational or otherwise, unbeknownst to those end users. And there's a few reasons for that, but fentanyl is very, very deadly and very addictive. And it is an opioid, which is in the same class as Oxycontin, as Oxy. So the fact that it is being mixed into a lot of recreational drugs that young people may be using at parties and music festivals, legally or illegally, they're actually not realizing the risk they're putting themselves under because a very deadly and very addictive opioid is getting mixed into other drugs which they may not think to be anywhere near as big a deal. How do we get into this predicament and why is the RACGP in Australia trying to back and argue for maybe more routine drug testing across the country? This comes down to a couple of features of fentanyl that make it really easy to mix with other drugs. So the first thing is fentanyl is very, very potent. When we talk about potency of a drug, we're talking about essentially how much of it do you need to add to someone's bloodstream for them to feel an effect, for the effect of the drug to take place. 
And if it's very potent, that means you need hardly any of it, a tiny amount for someone who's taking a drug to have an effect on their biology. And what opioids are all doing, they're targeting the opioid receptor, which very broadly is involved in pain. Blocking the opioid receptor would essentially stop you from feeling pain. There are other side effects, but that's very broadly what it does. And there's a couple of things that regulate how much drug, how much opioid you need to have to have an effect on the opioid receptor. Receptor binding to the drug, the tighter that binding event is, the less of the drug you will need. And fentanyl is very, very good at binding to the opioid receptor. So good, in fact, that you need hardly any of it. So if you just have a little bit of fentanyl, that pain receptor will be blocked and you can feel it. If they sprinkle in a bit of fentanyl, which is by all counts a lot cheaper than other drugs like heroin, they mix in a little bit of fentanyl and the user will feel something straight away. And they will feel, ah, oh, I got really good value for my money. How about they define value? Maybe just feeling a bit different, adding into other drugs like MDMA, different kinds of pills. But what they're actually doing is exposing those end users to enormous risk, both in terms of the capacity to overdose from fentanyl. I'm going to go out on a limb to say that a lot of people who are working with drugs illegally do not have a chemistry degree and therefore maybe measuring the exact amount of fentanyl to add might not be their strong suit. If it does contain fentanyl, Two milligrams can be lethal depending on the person's body size. So if even a tiny little bit of miscalculation of fentanyl being added into this pill that someone who's taking it doesn't know it has fentanyl, it could be deadly. This is clearly not an issue restricted to the USA anymore. It's hit our shores in Australia. It's affected the globe. There are opioid-related health events and deaths globally. It doesn't seem to be slowing out anytime soon. And it's gone so bad that there is quite a historic case against Purdue Pharma, the original company guilty of that marketing ploy to the states with loose regulations so they could push their new drug Oxycontin in very, very smart and strategic and sinister, cynical ploy to get people addicted to their drug. And you can see that the Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, which are the family that own Purdue Pharma, they reached a $6 billion deal back in 2022, settling with the state attorney general. And this is quite a lot of money, but I'm sure within the big scheme of things, it's not that much for those big pharma companies. And what is quite sickening about this is that, yes, there are settlements and there are payouts. There are hundreds of millions of dollars going to different states to address the opioid epidemic. The damage is done and there's going to be way more that needs to be invested to fix the problem than this $6 billion fine. And on top of that, they deny wrongdoing and describe the settlement to allow substantial resources to reach communities in need to try and spin it as a positive. But again, this is this is very sickening kind of stuff. The prescription medicine still has the ability to help people suffer from chronic pain and it unexpectedly became part of an opioid crisis. Again, how unexpected that is depends on what memo you read, I think. Yes, it can be used as a legitimate drug, but man, given that previous research article we talked about in The Lancet and that even for low back pain and neck pain, it doesn't really seem to help even when administered on a short-term scale. That really draws into really sharp relief the risk-reward ratio for taking one of these opioids to help manage pain. And they have also admitted criminal wrongdoing in two separate plea agreements with the U.S. Department of Justice, but no personal wrongdoing. The deal was not final, but essentially this is an ongoing thing that's going to drag out and then will probably and maybe should be further lawsuits 
to come. Let's talk a little bit more about fentanyl, maybe even more dangerous than Oxycontin. Fentanyl is synthetic and it is up to 50 times stronger than heroin and 100 times stronger than morphine. And we talked about that strength before. Chemically, it's related to the ability to bind to a receptor and bind to it quickly and bind to it tightly. Quickly could just be how well and how quickly it's absorbed into your blood and into different parts of your system and hits the right receptors, crossing the blood brain barrier requires a number of chemical properties that allows any kind of chemical to move through that system in a speedy way. Binding to the receptor tightly is due to engineering. There are drugs that naturally fit receptors, of course, but synthetically made drugs like fentanyl is synthetically engineered in a lab. They can make that association between receptor and the drug really, really tight and make it so that you need hardly any of the drug for it to have an effect. So the power of fentanyl and how potent it is, is the deliberate effort and the deliberate work of kind of geniuses in this field to make this so, so effective. But the indirect consequence of this amazing human ingenuity is the potency for its abuse. It is a major contributor to fatal and non-fatal overdoses in the US. And there is, of course, pharmaceutical fentanyl as well as illegally made fentanyl. And there are legitimate uses for pharmaceutical fentanyl under very clear guidelines. But illegally made fentanyl is very common and it can be liquid or powdered form and mixed with other drugs, heroin, cocaine, and methamphetamine into pills that resemble other prescription opioids. And we can have fentanyl-laced drugs all over the place like we're finding out in Australia right now. It's gotten to the point where you need very rigorous recommendations and guidelines if you suspect someone is overdosing from fentanyl. You need to call whatever the emergency number in your country is. In America, it's 911. In Australia, it's triple zero if you suspect someone is experiencing an overdose. And if you have naloxone, which is essentially an anti-opioid blocker that would try and bump the opioid away from that receptor as quickly as possible. Naloxone, which can be available as a nasal spray now. The FDA approved it as a nasal spray a little while ago if it's available. And then you try and keep the person awake and breathing, try and prevent them from choking so lay them on their side and stay with them until emergency assistance arrives this is something that is very very standardized and it's kind of sad that these guidelines have to be so standardized now because the extent of this overdose epidemic is really really pervasive across the whole world what fentanyl is doing on your brain is again to block the body's opioid receptors which are found in the areas of the brain that control pain and emotions and this is a link from the national institute on drug abuse which is uh, funded and organized by the nih the national institutes of health the side effects or the effects of it extreme happiness drowsiness nausea confusion constipation sedation or respiratory problems and unconsciousness and you can overdose really quickly and you can decrease the amount of that reaches the brain when you do this because it's so potent you need so little bit overdose is actually very easy to do let's say you're on another opioid that's not as powerful as fentanyl and something you take is laced with fentanyl you will need way more of the other opioid to match the feeling you get from taking a tiny bit of fentanyl so it can ruin other drugs for you and make you more dependent not just on fentanyl but more dependent on other pain management drugs so really it is a very very vicious cycle that's involved and people addicted to fentanyl 
who stop using it can have all these withdrawal symptoms from it even as early as a few hours. So this is the latest iteration of this very addictive drug and it's come about because of the amazing ingenuity of scientists able to engineer a synthetic drug that binds to that opioid receptor so efficiently and so tightly. And that brings us to our recurring segment on the podcast, Whose Job Is It Anyway? Trying to interpret how the science and tech news headlines influence your decisions in finding the job for the future. I'm by no means suggesting that you become a drug dealer making fentanyl in your backyard or that you go get a chemistry degree so that you know how to do this much, much more effectively. These types of headlines about big pharma and their abuse of technology and their emphasis on profits can really leave a bad taste in your mouth about. Do these people even know what they're doing? Should I bother trying to get into this kind of work? Do I have real ethical concerns against the direction that this whole sector is moving in? Perfectly understandable. But like all things in the world, they are value neutral unless people who aren't value neutral ascribe their own ambitions onto them. So the technology itself is rather ambivalent. It does not have any morality associated with it. Same with artificial intelligence. The technology itself does not have any ethics or any morality imbued into its fabric. It's the people who are using it and wielding it that will then impart that sense of ethics or that lack of morality onto that tech. Same applies for this kind of engineering. The same techniques used to make fentanyl such an amazing synthetic opioid for blocking that receptor, which then makes it so potent and so dangerous to the point where people can die from taking it or become addicted so, so easily, is the same technology that amazing scientists are using to make drugs that are life-saving, life-altering, and you need much less of those drugs to the same effect and therefore it's much easier to mass produce. Technology itself does not have any morality to it. It is about the people who are involved in the work, who drive the agenda of these companies, who then have their ethics and values imbued onto the technology rather than the other way around. So if you're interested in learning about this, don't think because of the negative headlines that are involved that this is the turret for you with someone with a moral compass who wants to do good in the world, that you should veer away from the cutting edge of innovation. We need even more people like you with the values to be in these positions to make the right call, you should understand even more of the innovation to be able to make an impact on a sector that may at times be guided in the wrong direction due to profit margins. I'll give you one final good example of synthetic biology and the positive impact that it has had on the world. And that is a classic example about insulin. So insulin is not a drug in the first instance. Insulin is a protein, a hormone that we make in our body all the time. But of course, if you are a sufferer of diabetes, the insulin in your body essentially stops working. Insulin tells your body, regulate the amount of sugar in your blood at any one point in time. Insulin regulates those levels up and down. But if you're diabetic, your insulin is either not working or you don't make enough insulin to begin with. Mass produced insulin to be sold all across the world to improve and really save the lives of millions and millions of diabetics is because we use synthetic biology to engineer and mass produce insulin and this technology is still used to this day. This is used for very positive benefits. It's not used for a nefarious opioid to massify addiction. It is used to help people. Using recombinant DNA technology, they inserted a human gene into a bacteria. Human gene, of course, is the gene for insulin because you want that same 
DNA sequence from the human insulin gene to make the insulin that would then be usable by humans. And what they did in this experiment was they spliced the human insulin gene, the DNA of it, into a part of the bacterial DNA. And bacterial cells are amazing at making DNA into protein. Bacteria make DNA into protein at the very least a thousand times faster than human cells. A human cell can make insulin, but if you give it to bacterial cell and you trick it into making human genes into human protein, which is what it's doing in this case, making human insulin, the DNA of human insulin into human insulin, the protein, then you can improve and speed up the production of insulin by a thousand times. And that's the only reason, the only reason that we're able to provide insulin to millions and millions of people all over the world at relatively affordable prices, although those prices do fluctuate depending on the market. But that's the only reason it's anywhere near affordable because we were able to use synthetic biology and trick a bacteria into making human insulin and therefore making the whole process much cheaper because bacteria into a fermentation tank and making the bacteria make insulin and harvesting the insulin and then purifying the insulin, all of that is orders of magnitude cheaper and faster than getting human cells or even animal cells to do that same process. So this very virtuous outcome allowing millions of diabetics to live their everyday lives very, very normally is because of synthetic biology. So again, the technology, the innovation itself is value neutral. The people who work with the technology are the ones who ascribe any morality to it. If you see any negative headlines about scientists and people in tech making wrong decisions, don't use that as a deterrent to go away from the innovation. Use that as a motivation to head even more into the cutting edge of anything that you do and align yourself with the most cutting edge innovation in any field that you approach. That is the only way to steer us into the right direction and determine the jobs of the future that align with your own values. And that brings us to the conclusion of another episode of the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as Google Podcasts. You can find the full video episodes on my YouTube channel, BioLab Collective with Jack Wayne. Thank you for listening. I'm Jack Wayne. Hope to connect with you again next time around.